Hello everyone, this is Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. Last weekend, I posted on my Patreon page my latest lecture on Myth of the Month 14, Astrology, looking at astrology as a discipline, a field of lore, and also as a way of explaining and framing history. So if you want to hear that, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description and become a patron at any level, and you'll have access to all of my patron-only materials, including that latest one on astrology. And this one, at the request of my followers, will be on the early church. And I'm going to try to cover the roots and development of the early Christian church, more or less in its first three centuries, basically from after the death of Christ up until the time of Constantine, the first openly Christian emperor. So what I want to do today is talk about the rise and spread of Christianity through the Roman world and also eastward. And then in the next installment, I'll discuss the internal evolution of the beliefs and practices in the churches. This is a very complicated and often mysterious subject. We can only know so much about what went on in the early Christian church because it was largely underground. It was sometimes persecuted, both in the Roman Empire and other realms, and it was mainly composed of illiterate people. It was mostly women, probably, and also many peasants and laborers. So we have to try to reconstruct how Christian beliefs and practices developed and how the new religion spread from really piecemeal evidence, documents or just fragments surviving of documents by Christians themselves, and also occasional pieces of comments or discussion about the existence of this new group by outsiders, and also, of course, archaeology and artwork and physical objects. We have to piece together the best picture we can of this formative early time of Christianity. And as I said, there's a lot of uncertainty. Many of the documents that we do have come from much later after the life and death of Jesus Christ. And I spoke about that already before in my lectures about who wrote the Bible, the New Testament, and the historical Jesus. So you can look back at those for more kind of explanation of what is the evidence that we have that's survived down to today from this early moment, from the life of Christ himself, and from the few years thereafter that are described in the New Testament of the Bible. And I'll refer to some books like the Gospel of Luke or the Epistles of Paul. And if you want, you can go back to my lecture on who wrote the Bible to the context and the backstory of what these documents are and who produced them and when, at least according to our best guesses. 
But I'm going to try to tell this story starting basically from just after the crucifixion of Jesus himself up until Christianity became an openly tolerated and state-supported religion in the Roman Empire. And that story begins in the most obscure period about which we have the least information, which is basically the first 25 years or so of what scholars today call not necessarily even the church, but the Jesus group or the Jesus movement, the sort of persistent, special group of people, mostly Jews, that formed around Jesus of Nazareth himself, and then persisted and continued to grow after his death. So this is a very uncertain time because of the lack of original texts. Most of them come from at least 20 years or more after the death of Jesus, which we suppose was maybe around the year AD 30. And it seems that this group, what we could loosely call the early church, was basically a set of followers, many of whom had known and seen Jesus personally. They included a special group of 12 disciples, a sort of inner circle that Jesus had gathered around himself, and that persisted with one of them, Judas Iscario, missing, either dead or exiled. And so hence, they're sometimes referred to as the Eleven, this sort of core inner group of disciples who then became apostles or leaders and spreaders of the faith. And it does seem clear, although we don't have contemporary written documents from the time, it does seem very clear that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross surprisingly galvanized rather than destroyed the Jesus movement, you know, taking someone whom some of his followers regarded as a hero, a prophet, maybe even the Messiah or anointed leader of the Jews, and killing him by crucifixion, the Roman authorities clearly expected that that would quash the movement, and that was a reasonable expectation. But things ended up unfolding very differently. And it's clear that very soon after the death of Jesus, maybe within days or weeks, his followers came to believe that he had actually resurrected from the dead. And there are different theories about why they came to believe this. Of course, you know, Christians teach as a matter of faith that he did resurrect from the dead, and that is sort of the original core miracle at the center of the Christian faith. But some have argued perhaps uh, Jesus was not really dead in the first place, or perhaps uh, his followers had, as many people in deep grief often do, had visions of him, which they understood to mean that he had risen from the dead. And this, uh, this fact was very important to the Jesus group and very meaningful to them and to others when they spread this message, because we have to understand there was a widespread common belief among Jews in the late Second Temple period when all of this was happening, that the all of the dead would resurrect and that that a re general resurrection of the dead, whether it was bodily or spiritual, it was an important step in the end times, in the approach of 
the messianic era, the millennium, the apocalypse, whatever you want to call it, and the sort of final reckoning that would bring the kingdom of God in some form or other, by which God would actually rule the world rather than fallen earthly human powers. So this notion that Jesus had in fact resurrected from the dead was important and meaningful, firstly, because you could take it to mean that he was the first fruits. And this is a phrase that these members of this early Jesus movement clearly used. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the first one whom God had chosen to raise from the dead. And that meant, for one thing, that the end times were at hand, that the, the end times were beginning to unfold, and that Jesus was playing some special role. He was somehow a leader, and hence it could be linked together in some way with this for this other pre-existing Jewish idea that there would be a Messiah, a chosen, anointed leader or king of the Jews who would redeem the Jews from suffering and oppression and would bring them to a time of justice and peace. So it seems that all of these kind of pre-existing Jewish teachings and materials that were already out there among Jews in Palestine and elsewhere in the Roman era could be kind of uh, revised, refashioned, and refocused around the figure of Jesus himself, that he was the Messiah or Moshiach, the anointed one, that he was the first fruits of the resurrection, and that some sort of apocalypse and kingdom of God were coming. And as part of that, probably, because this was also a common notion, probably with this kingdom of God, the good and the evil would be judged, and there would be some kind of uh, divine justice where the good would be rewarded and saved and redeemed from suffering. So it seems that the Jesus group uh, em embraced and crystallized this idea that imminently Jesus Christ, the and Christ just means Messiah in Greek, the anointed one, that Jesus Christ would soon take up rulership and rule as sort of God's chosen leader, representative, and protector of the good. And people who received this message about Jesus Christ's resurrection were therefore urged to put their faith or hope or trust in Jesus. And all of these words, particularly faith, have taken on very loaded and complicated meanings today when we associate them with religion. But we have to kind of put some of those associations out of our mind and think about the context of this moment in these first 10, 15 years or so after Jesus' death. Putting faith or hope or trust in Jesus basically meant uh, having confidence, trusting that he was in fact the leader and redeemer of the Jews, that he was in fact soon going to take up this role of leadership or rulership, and that he would forgive and redeem even those who had been sinful or unclean, right? So if you're in this mindset where you're anticipating a possible end times, and many Jews were in that mindset already anyway, 
then it can actually be comforting, right, to say, well, I'm just going to trust now that this person who has risen from the dead is imminently coming, will oversee this end time, this kingdom of God, this final judgment, and that he will be clement and forgiving. And in this way, these stories that were probably circulating orally about Jesus's life might have been very appealing. The notion that he had consorted with prostitutes and tax collectors and that he had associated himself with people who were considered the most unclean, the most outcast in Jewish society in the Roman era. This could present a picture of a comparatively benevolent uh, messiah and comparatively benevolent judge for this final judgment. And so in this way, you could feel that you were uh, safe or you could feel reassurance if you put this hope or trust in the imminent coming of Jesus Christ as a new ruler. Nonetheless, what do you do, you know, even with that being said, what do you do when you believe the final kingdom or judgment or apocalypse is coming? Well, you know, we've all seen the dramas and heard the stories. You repent. <laughs> you know, the kingdom is coming. Time to repent of your sins. So people felt that it was appropriate to do something, to commit some act to show that you were putting your sins aside, you were, let's say, cleansing yourself, renewing yourself to be ready for this imminent approaching final judgment. So what did people do? They baptized, just as John the Baptist had done before Jesus began his ministry. And just as John had even done to Jesus himself, they went to places that were seen as clean or holy or sacred, uh, rivers, baths, wells, and they cleansed themselves with water to symbolize or enact that they were putting aside their sins and they were ready for this imminent uh, reappearance of the risen Jesus Christ. So as people accepted and embraced this message, this good news, you might say in quotation marks, about Jesus's resurrection and about his imminent return to judge the world and oversee the end times, they baptized themselves and then were ready to be part of and fully to be fully part of this gathering, this movement of Jesus followers who had put their faith or trust in Jesus Christ. And that basically is the rudiment of what we now call the church, right? This, this distinct subgroup of people who undergo baptism as part of their profession of faith and readiness to join this special group uh, that is prepared for the arrival of Christ as ruler and judge. So this is really the point, and this is, I, I, I want to get across, this is the, the crux of what these early Christians, if we call them that in quotation marks, these early Christians were concerned about, right? All this other stuff that we might say theologically about Christ, these other questions, is he the son of God? What does that mean? Was he born of a virgin? What does that mean? All of that, it seems, was ambiguous, different members of the Jesus group who received this message probably interpreted 
Jesus's nature differently? Was he a divine being? Was he a human being? Was he fathered by God? Uh, If he was the Messiah, what exactly does that mean? All of this was unclear. Different people, it seems, had different views and understandings about that. And all of that had to be hammered out later, over the course of centuries, over the course of centuries, okay? So it's important here to understand there was this core message Christ is is returning. He is resurrected from the dead. He is going to lead humankind as a ruler and representative of God during the end times. That was the core important message that people shared. The theological uh, snags, the theological complications, all of that remained changing, ambiguous, and had to be negotiated for centuries and remained unresolved. And we'll talk about that later. Okay, how did this Jesus group or this early church operate? Well, there were gatherings, it seems, in private places, houses, homes, sometimes maybe taverns or inns, even warehouses. These gathered followers would eat a shared meal, particularly involving bread and wine. And, you know, there are references to the Last Supper and Jesus telling his disciples to uh, eat bread and wine and drink wine. They prayed. They developed their own sort of prayer liturgy. They performed baptisms of new joining members, which it seems there were many at every moment. It was strong, if we look at, well, who were these people? It seems it was particularly strong among women. Uh, you know, we don't have numbers. There was no census or Gallup poll. But it's it's reasonable to suppose the majority of the Jesus group in these early years was women. There's biblical evidence of the importance of women as devotees of Christ. For example, all of the Gospels report his Jesus's followers finding an empty tomb and reporting that he had resurrected and risen from the dead. And they, those who refer to the gender all say that these were women who first learned and reported that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. And in this way, we can say, I think, reasonably that according to the common understanding of the word, we can say that the first Christians were women. The first people to bear witness to the resurrection of Christ were women. And I think it's not an accident that that's how it is recounted in the gospel accounts. There are also references, for example, in the book of Acts, there are references to great apostles and leaders of the church like Junia. They don't say much about them, but where they are mentioned, it's stressed that these were crucial individuals. And if we think about, uh, well, where were these meetings happening where people were enacting this belief in Christ and welcoming newcomers into this early church, where was it happening? In private homes, also in taverns and inns, especially along the roads. Well, who was running these spaces, these basically domestic spaces, whether private or semi-private? They were women, women who ran the Jewish home or women who usually ran and hosted these inns and taverns. So these women were probably crucial in giving the early church a place, a a, a literal physical and social space to function and grow and spread. 
And there are also later stories that were written down later than the biblical narratives, saints' narratives, narratives of the Dormition of Mary at the end of Mary's life that describe women performing miracles, acting as apostles. And all these later stories are, you know, they're dubious to different degrees. We can't take them at face value as historical fact, but they may represent a, a sort of alternative canon, a sort of canon of stories that were passed on orally by women about women, emphasizing their importance and prominence in the church. And that just only got written down later because so much fewer women were literate and could read and write as compared to the male apostles. So all in all, it does seem we can say women were very important, even central in the formation of this early church in these early years, even if that's not reflected very much in the earliest documents that we have. So as I said, taverns and inns were really critical. They were sort of the, the nodes where this Christian message could spread, reach new audiences, and take shape as a new institution, a new organization. A lot of the success of the Christian message was due to the Roman road system, which was at its height and very well maintained, very effective and reliable, right at the height of the Roman Empire. And if we look at important stories that were developed and woven into the early Christian canon, they include things like the Nativity story, where, uh, where Jesus's parents, Mary and Joseph, have to travel to Bethlehem for some bizarre bureaucratic reason. They're traveling on the roads. They try to take shelter at an inn. They end up out in the manger. But it emphasizes being uh, on the road, traveling. They, they also have to flee to Egypt and then come back in some versions of the story. And so there's this connection to travel, the roads, being mobile. Also then later we'll talk about Paul. Paul's miraculous conversion occurs out on the road to Damascus. Uh, there's this uh, sense that, that you can even see in these written documents that Christianity in a sense was almost a religion or a faith of the roadways and of people on the roads. And I think there's a wonderful illustration of that also in a story that was collected into the Gospel of Luke, which we call the Supper at Emmaus. And it's hard to say, you know, exactly how old or how early that story is, but it probably is pretty early. Uh, and, you know, certainly within the first century because it was included in the Gospel of Luke. And this story comes right after the recounting of the resurrection. The, that most important critical miracle that sort of makes uh, the church, uh, launches the Jesus group into becoming what we would call the church. And right after that recounting of the miracle of the resurrection and how the eleven learned about it, you then get this story about people on the road. And I'll read some of this story. So it says in Luke 24, quote, Now that same day... Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. 
but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. So notice how they describe him here, which I think suggests that this is a very early story, I would wager. They don't say, uh, he's, he's the Christ, he's, uh, he's the Son of God. Rather, they say, quote, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So notice they're saying here he was a prophet, right? And scholars like Bart Ehrman argue that's how the early Jesus group mainly understood Jesus, was as a prophet. But we hoped, we didn't know, but we hoped that he was the Messiah, the one who was going to redeem Israel. And then they continue, And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So these two... uh, followers of Christ. They, they're, they're traveling on the road. Jesus comes and speaks with them, but they don't recognize him for whatever supernatural reason. They don't recognize who he is. And they're not saying Jesus rose from the dead. They're just saying some women tell us that Jesus rose from the dead, and maybe we're confused or concerned. So it goes on, Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So here we have Christ making the argument that the Jewish prophets anticipated the notion that the Messiah would suffer and then rise again, which was a common Christian argument. And then the story continues. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on, as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks. And this is according to common, normal Jewish custom, right? You break bread, say a prayer, maybe a blessing, Uh, as you begin supper. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. So this is one of, it seems, one of the early stories of Jesus appearing to his followers and who would become apostles, right, and spread the word of his resurrection, And it illustrates, I think, a lot of things. This, for one thing, this notion that where the followers of Jesus gather together, Jesus is somehow therefore present with them. And he may even appear to them. They may have visions of him, right? So this keeps 
you could say, the faith going and keeps it growing. And I think it's significant that they meet with Jesus while walking on the road, and they're walking out of Jerusalem, out to some other town or village, out in in the lands of Palestine around Jerusalem. So it represents their, their taking this knowledge and this new belief in the resurrection of Jesus out on the roads, on the Roman roads. They're spreading it. And notice the story doesn't tell us where does the supper happen. It just says that they stop and then they invite and urge Jesus to come in with them to supper. Is it their home? Is it a private home? Is it an inn or a tavern? We don't know. It's not said specifically. It could be any. But if this reported miracle happened in this place, wherever it was that they were having supper, did they then tell the message to someone else? We miraculously saw this Savior, this Messiah who was risen from the dead. Did it then spread further out on the roads? So I think this story gives us this little snippet of the sort of things that happened that carried this, this message and this new faith, this new belief that would give rise to Christianity, how it spread out from mainly from Jerusalem out to, uh, to other lands, to significantly, of course, to Galilee, to that northern Jewish area where Jesus had come from and begun his ministry. And eventually it started to reach other cities as well, such as Damascus in Syria. And by that time, it seems, by about A.D. 50 or so, if we're talking about maybe about 20 years after the death of Jesus, it was also spreading significantly among Gentiles, those who were not identified as Jews. And we have to then look at a further context beyond just Jewish beliefs about the Messiah, the millennium, the end times, the resurrection. We also have to consider that there was a very fuzzy situation, as there tends to be among different peoples who live side by side for many years. There was ambiguity and blurry boundaries. There were many Jews who were interested in in foreign ideas, in Greek ideas and philosophy. There were many who spoke Greek, who took up Greek customs. You can see this even woven into the Hebrew scriptures, the so-called wisdom tradition, which borrows a great deal from Greek philosophy of the time. So there were Jews who, quote, Hellenized, who acted or took on the practices of Greeks. There were also, it seems, the reverse. There were Gentiles who were very interested in Judaism and who sometimes Judaized, who took up the customs, the languages of Jews and who were interested in Jewish teachings and even the Jewish God. There, there's some evidence that in some synagogues there were Gentiles who would show up and kind of hang around. They may have been curious. So there's also evidence you can see in the New Testament, things like the Roman soldier who approached Jesus who was a, a Jewish preacher and prophet, and asked him to heal his servant. So there was uh, kind of, you know, fraternization and also sometimes interest about one another's ideas, powers, gods, across this boundary between Jews and Gentiles. There were also other marginal groups, groups that were 
that you could consider Jews, but that some Jews considered to be apostates or outside the fold, like Samaritans. So it was a complicated social landscape. And it seems that the earth, this Christian gospel, if we want to call it that, this message of Christ, started to attract the interest of some Gentiles who were curious about Jewish law and teachings. And some of them, it seems, accepted and embraced this message about Christ's resurrection and the imminent second coming, possibly because they just they found it persuasive, they were impressed by the reports of miracles, or maybe because it allowed them to sort of be part of a Jewish group and a Jewish movement that might have a somewhat lower burden than the complete halachic conversion to Judaism, which involved you know, a somewhat arduous process and which involved rites like circumcision that could be deterrence. So it may have provided, you could say, a kind of slightly lower hurdle if you were a Gentile who was interested in Judaism and in Jewish teachings and the Jewish God. So by that time, by AD 50, you had teams of apostles forming who were cooperatively uh, living and traveling together on the roads and even at sea, living communally, sharing money and possessions, going from village to village, mainly Jewish villages, and who in many ways were behaving like traditional Jewish prophets, people who had for centuries traveled around Judea, uh, spreading messages of a coming judgment. But they were, uh, you could say they were kind of secondary prophets. They were not proclaiming a message for themselves, but they were proclaiming a message about Jesus Christ. And some of them did very interesting, they had interesting strategies for trying to impress the importance of their message upon fellow Jews, such as an inversion, where they would treat those Jews who rejected the message of Christ as unclean. So there are a lot of rules and customs in Judaism about ritual purity. And one thing that Jews traditionally considered to be sacred and pure was the Holy Land that had been their promised land. And it was customary if a Jew had been traveling abroad to Greece or Rome or Egypt, when they came back into the land of Israel, they would uh, beat the dust off of their clothes and their shoes to show that they didn't want to bring that sort of uncleanliness from abroad into the Holy Land. And it was a way of marking your entrance, a rite of passage to mark your entrance into the Holy Land. Well, what some of these Christian apostles started to do is when they went to a village, they would preach this message and try to gain devotees. And if they failed, and if they were completely rejected or expelled from the village, which was common, then as they left the village, they would beat the dust off their clothes and shoes to show, I consider you unclean and impure, and I don't want to take that with me as I go back onto the road. So there was this interesting kind of, you know, in inversion where now purity and cl cleanness was marked by professing belief in Christ and by undergoing baptism, this cleansing ritual that marked your commitment to Christ. So it seems that these were the sort of patterns and processes going on by, you know, certainly by A.D. 50. 
Now, also by this time, a very important new apostle had emerged in a new way and sort of vaulted into leadership of some of the church and some of this movement, although he was controversial, although his standing was ambiguous and uncertain, he clearly became the most crucial figure in the spread and evolution of the church. And that is Paul, who was Jewish. His original name was Saul. And some have argued that that when Paul became an apostle, he in some ways really was the creator of Christianity as we know it. And he was the main proponent of the idea that one's sins are forgiven through professing faith in Christ. That it, it is taking up this belief that in itself gives you salvation from those sins and gives you a place in the resurrection and the world to come. So what do we know about Paul? We don't know a whole lot. He was Jewish. He came from probably a prominent family. He'd been trained by rabbis, so he was learned in uh, Jewish law and scholarship. He was a so-called Pharisee. He was part of this party of uh, scholarly students and teachers of the law. He was from Tarsus, so he was not from uh, Judea. He was from a Tarsus, which was a Greek town in Asia Minor, up in that area northwest of Judea that was mainly Greek-speaking. He knew Greek. It probably was his first language. He knew Stoic philosophy, the sort of fashionable philosophy of the Roman Empire at that time. But he also was learned in Hebrew and in the Jewish scriptures and Jewish philosophy. He went to Judea. That's where he was trained. And it seems that politically he was very much aligned with the temple. So although he himself was a Pharisee, politically he fell into the camp that could be called Sadducees, the supporters of the temple priests. And like most people in that camp, he saw uh, devotion to the temple as a way of maintaining in social, political, social and political order and kind of managing the relationship between the Jews and Rome through this alliance of the temple with the Roman regime. Reportedly, he persecuted the church. We don't know exactly what this means, but at the very least, he, he aggressively opposed the rise of this Jesus group and the infiltration of the Jesus message into the Jewish synagogues. Why did he do this? Well, it seems that his main target was Hellenized Jews, so Jews who had lived abroad in other parts of the empire, who had learned Greek, like him, had taken on various Greek customs, who then returned to Jerusalem, and then living in Jerusalem, learned and embraced this message of Christ and became part of the Jesus group. Why did he target these people and see them as a problem? Well, it seems that his main objection was their anti-temple attitude. So these Hellenized Jews who maybe kind of intermixed, intercombined Jewish and Greek customs, who had returned to Palestine, they were extremely skeptical or resistant to the authority of the temple, and they found the Jesus Christ message appealing. 
And so Paul apparently considered them a political and social threat. And he tried to basically either expel them from the synagogues or force them to give up this Jesus Christ message. But all in all, we can see that it seems that Paul Paul was confused. His position was very ambiguous. He was probably torn and ambivalent exactly whom he should be supporting and opposing, how he should live and act as a Jew. You know, he himself was in this kind of weird marginal position as a a Hellenistic Jew opposing other Hellenized Jews. And he describes in his surviving writings, which are the, his letters are the earliest surviving Christian documents. He describes feeling in anguish of guilt, of inadequacy, of a feeling of never being able to live up to the Jewish law, constantly being tempted and falling into sin. And often when people feel guilty and uh, and feel anger at themselves, they can direct that anger outward and target other people whom they see as representing the same weaknesses and the same flaws that they see in themselves. So we can reasonably surmise this was his kind of mindset when he set out on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus because he had learned that the Jesus Christ message was starting to find followers and a foothold among Jews up in Damascus, in Syria. But according to Paul, or he was still at this time called Saul, while on the road he had a vision. And he, this vision seems to be roughly in line with Jewish mysticism at the time. He was sort of taken up into a higher heaven, and he heard the voice of Christ saying, why do you persecute me? He says that he came to believe in Christ as the Messiah and Redeemer. He was blinded for three days and had to be led by the hand into Damascus. And according to the book of Acts, A Christian leader in Damascus named Ananias found out about him, went to him, laid on hands, which is a common ceremony of of healing, a sort of uh, godly embrace, restored his sight. And Paul was, you could say, reborn, the, the common Christian conversion experience. And he found great relief in the idea that Christ had redeemed him from sin. And that he, the central thing was he needed to believe, to put his trust and confidence in Christ. And he says in his writings, for example, in his letter to the Romans, he says, quote, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this is his way, or this is the way that he coped with his feelings of inadequacy, of impurity, and it resolved his, uh, it, it resolved at least that <laughs> stage of anguish and guilt in his life. He began preaching in the synagogues around Damascus among Jews, proclaiming that Christ was the Son of God. And at this point, it seems when people said Jesus Christ is the Son of God, they understood Son to mean sort of servant or supporter. Or, or representative. He was a kind of representative of God. It doesn't necessarily mean, we don't have to understand it to mean he was fathered by God in the way that a human being, you know, fathers a son. It, or at least it's not clear if people took it that way. 
So this message that Paul spread, it was understood in a Jewish context. But the meaning could change if that message then was carried over to Gentiles. And what, what, do you, what does a Gentile Greek speaker understand you to mean when you say Jesus is the Son of God? So it seems that there was ambiguity, there were mistranslations, and Christian doctrines later on had to develop out of that ambiguity. Probably this initial mission of spreading the message in Damascus failed. So Paul then went to Sinai or to Arabia in order to contemplate, to have a kind of spiritual retreat, to work out his beliefs about Jesus Christ. And he then afterwards found that he was ready to preach widely. But there was a question and a problem. What did he think? What were his beliefs, his teachings, and what would be his strategy? And would that line up with the existing Christian church that was centered mainly in Jerusalem? And how would he relate to and deal with the other leaders of that Christian group in Jerusalem, some of whom were disciples who had known Jesus himself in person. So Paul went to Jerusalem and he met Peter, who, like Paul, had changed his name. He had been born as Simon, but changed his name to Peter, meaning the rock, which apparently was a moniker, that reportedly was a moniker that Jesus gave him. And he met with these leaders, also with James, who is described in Paul's writings as the brother of Jesus. So people who had been personally close to him. And reportedly he stayed there for 15 days, right, a fortnight. And they worked out or hammered out their differences. So they, come, they came to some kind of common understanding about who was Jesus how had he lived and behaved? What was the message about him that they should be preaching? What were the prophecies? So Paul, it seems, aligned himself enough to be seen as legitimate by the leaders in Jerusalem, but he maintained his total independence. He did not accept that he was subordinate or had to follow the lead of these apostles like Peter. And probably they came to a kind of rough basic agreement, it seems, that Paul would preach among Gentiles, whereas Peter and his associates would preach among Jews. So they kind of divided up the world and divided up their, tar their targets. And this probably made sense strategically because Paul was a Greek speaker and he was very erudite in Greek. Now, this sort of... Uh, you could say, carefully negotiated settlement between Peter and Paul. It's very important, and it's a kind of early instance of a repeating issue that runs all through the early church, which is the tension between apostolic authority and charismatic authority. So that's between people with formal institutional roles of leadership such as bishops, or at this early stage, simply apostles who had known Christ personally and who had some kind of special preeminence because of that relationship, versus, on the other hand, charismatic authority. So that's people who have special abilities, which allows them to learn or communicate or receive messages directly from God or directly from Christ. 
So that could be through visions, through dreams, through miracles, through what many people through the years have called gifts of the spirit, the ability to prophesy or speak in tongues. So these are two different ways of claiming importance and claiming authority in the church. Uh, apostolic authority, which is institutional and which ideally can trace a lineage back to Jesus himself versus charismatic. And in a way, you can see Paul as an early charismatic leader. And he was very insistent that his message, his sort of flavor or version or understanding of the gospel message of Jesus Christ was fully valid and was completely equal to the message carried by the other apostles and that he was just as important or maybe even more important of an apostle than the others back in Jerusalem. So that's the sort of important subtext you see in a lot of Paul's writings. And just as an example, I'll read the opening of his letter to the Galatians, where Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. So he's making it extra clear here. I have revelation from Christ and from God. I have the right to preach this message, and I didn't have to ask permission from anybody. Not from Peter, not from James, not from Mary, not from no nobody. So the basic kind of core message that Paul tries to hammer home, once he's established his authority as a real apostle, his basic message is that people are sinful and unclean, but Christ offers salvation if one puts one's trust in him. And part of why, according to Paul, that works and makes sense is because Christ's suffering and death, the fact that he suffered a terrible death of pain and humiliation, that atones for the sins of humankind. The fact that Christ himself was able to go through that, he sort of took the punishment for the sins of humankind upon himself. And so if you accept that he is the Christ, he is the anointed one, and that he will judge, then your, your, the, your sins are expiated, in a sense. So Paul made the suffering and death of Christ centrally important in his message, not just the fact that he resurrected. And it's not clear whether other early Christians saw it that way, or if this was distinctive to Paul, but certainly Paul was influential such that over time, more and more, people began to speak of the, the crucifixion, the death on the cross as also central, not just the fact that Christ rose from the dead, but also the way he died. And that was important, too, because it was embarrassing. You know, in general, Jews who preached that they had a Messiah, they didn't want to say, well, our, our Messiah was arrested and condemned and died horribly and ignominiously on a cross. 
But Paul takes that part of the story and makes it part of his explanation of how it is that putting your trust or faith in Christ means that you are saved. So even even still, there were lingering differences. There continued to be sort of unresolved tensions between the Jerusalem group and the Pauline groups who were largely Gentile, largely Greek-speaking, and who learned of the faith through Paul's message. So they're formed, you could say, kind of two different, slightly different branches of the early church as it grew through the A.D. 50s, 60s, 70s. And one, the, the, the group centered on Paul, these sort of scattered gatherings around that corresponded with Paul, they put more emphasis on faith. At least Paul tried to insist that they put their emphasis on faith. It is simply believing in Christ that saves you. Whereas the group centered in Jerusalem that spread more among Jews, they put more emphasis on good actions and good a good way of life as a way of demonstrating that you were worthy of salvation and eternal life. So you could see on the one hand the epistles of Paul as one extreme of saying everyone is sinful, don't act like you can overcome your sin. It's just unavoidable. But faith saves you. On the other extreme, you have the epistle of James. And if it is true, as the early texts claim, that this epistle was written by someone called James, that James might be the same person that Paul mentions as the brother of Jesus himself. So this epistle of James puts a much greater emphasis on living out the teachings of Judaism and of Jesus, and on good action, not just inward belief. And in fact, James, you could you could see James as in a way almost countering Paul, saying, uh, it's not enough just to have faith. You have to have action to demonstrate that faith. And at one point, the epistle says, quote, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So if you have studied the Bible, you might notice how this this might be almost a direct confutation of what Paul says, for example, in one of his letters to the Corinthians, that the law kills, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Well, here James is saying, no, 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 you still have to live by the law, and it is the law that gives you that eternal life. So there's a tension here between these two different ways of understanding the gospel and of how to be a follower of Christ. Uh, the, the epistle of James that I just mentioned, it's uh, it's very Jewish, right? It sounds very much in line with what most Jewish teachers at the time might have been saying. And there are also shades in between that might be in some ways more like James's point of view. For example, the first epistle attributed to John, 
Uh, this epistle agrees on the basic sinfulness of humankind. So in that way, it, it acknowledges Paul's point of view. There's a basic sinfulness. There's a need for Christ as a means of atonement and propitiating sin. The first epistle of John, it's in line with other, you could say, Jewish Christian texts, Christian writings that were closer to the common Jewish beliefs, such as the Gospel of Matthew, the Epistle to the Hebrews, and so forth. And these texts tend to cast Jesus in the role of a Jewish priest, like a temple priest, or the sacrificial lamb that a priest sacrifices, who has to be offered as a sacrifice as a way of expiating the sins of men and women. But it also emphasizes the need for good actions and good conduct and the need to live ethically or else your faith is not real. So I'll just read a little bit of the beginning of this first epistle of John. It says, quote, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Right? So Jesus is somehow protecting you from the consequences of your sin. It goes on, and the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, he ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. And I wanted to quote especially that last line there. It's emphasizing abiding by the commandments, imitating Christ, walk as he walked, behave in the manner of Christ. And notice that it uses this metaphor of walk, right? meaning behavior or conduct, but it also, of course, means travel, right? go out on the roads, literally walk around village to village, spreading the message as Jesus himself did. And that's very much in line with what was happening still in these early years. So what can we say then, what happened from here after Paul was dead? So Paul, it seems, was arrested and condemned and executed by Roman authorities around the year A.D. 64. But again, the growth did not stop. And it seems that Christians were becoming more and more of a noticed presence uh, among among Jews and Gentiles, but particularly concentrated among Jews in that sort of core area where it had begun. Christians, it seems, were cast out of the Jewish synagogues around the years 80 to 95. There was an increasing exclusion where Jewish leaders saw them as a threat and even as kind of apostates for adhering to this belief in Christ. So more and more, as, as these early Christians were excluded from Jewish worship and Jewish prayer, they had to rely on themselves and on one another. And there was an effort towards organization and towards the formation of a regular system of worship among Christians as apart from Jewish worship. There was a need for written documents, right? some kind of a record of shared teachings and practices to sort of standardize the faith and, and establish the right ways of belief and right practices. So this was around the time of the creation of many of the Gospels. It seems the Gospels of Matthew and Luke were composed in this period, 
also a document called the Didache, which I'll talk about more later, which laid out kind of the, the accepted practices among these churches that are now forming and uh, standing independently in Judea and Syria. There also was increasing anxiety, especially apocalyptic anxiety, as Jesus did not return. Right? There was still this expectation of an imminent second coming, where Jesus would actually take up rulership and oversee the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, etc. And as that didn't happen, more and more people became obsessed with understanding why, why it was delayed, and when it would happen. Would, would there be signs? Would there be conditions that had to be met before the second coming could happen? And so you see more and more of a kind of uh, interest in apocalyptic prophecy to clarify when and how will the second coming happen. And so this is probably when the book of Revelations was started, although maybe it wasn't actually uh, completed as we see it until later, until after 100 AD. So still, by 100, certainly, the Christian movement was a visible presence. It, people were taking note of it. And there is an important early reference to them in a book on the Jews called Antiquities of the Jews, written by a Jewish general, Josephus, who had surrendered and gone over into the service of the Roman Empire. And he wrote Antiquities of the Jews in AD 94. And he gives a little sort of survey of the state of Judaism, of Jewish religion and politics. And in one passage, he's talking about the time of Tiberius. So, you know, the AD 20s and 30s or so. And he mentions, there's a passage that's very famous that's been preserved. Some of it is probably not authentic. Some of it was probably interpolated, inserted in later by Christian scribes who wanted to use Josephus as a source to confirm that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. So what I'm going to do is just read this passage, leaving out the parts that certainly seem interpolated and just giving the passage as most likely it was penned by Josephus although that, <laughs> that's controversial. But I would say the passage should go like this. About this time lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was the achiever of extraordinary deeds and was a teacher of those who accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. When he was indicted by the principal men among us and Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him originally did not cease to do so. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. And it's significant that Josephus, in writing this book, he uses the word Christianoi. And that probably was the word that these Christians themselves had started to take up, to say, if you are a follower or devotee of Christ, you belong to a special group, a special gathering, a special church, and we are called Christians. So altogether, we can guess that by this time, by around AD 100, there were around 10,000 Christians. So it had multiplied many times over from the death of Jesus Christ. And as I said, there was this significant cleavage between what you might call Jewish Christians, who were stronger in 
Palestine and in Syria and eastward, and Pauline Christians, especially in Greece and Asia Minor and further west, in areas where there were Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles. So if we talk first about just that western branch, it seems that there was the formation of a very strong group in Antioch, in this uh, important city that was very mixed and had a lot of Jews and Greeks and others up north of Galilee in what's now Turkey. This strong church in Antioch, it was presided over maybe for a short period by Peter himself. It was this group that probably composed the Gospel of Matthew and maybe also the Didache about Christian practices. They were the first to use the word Christian, Christianoi. And from these places like Antioch, it spread further into the Greek-speaking world using Koine Greek, sort of common, everyday uh, street Greek. And it found footholds in towns like Corinth, where there was a Jewish group that might serve as kind of the initial conduit, but then also many Greeks who were aware of, maybe interested in Judaism. And it reached Rome, and uh, a church group formed there by around AD 50 or so. And these groups, they were called in Greek ecclesia, which just means gathering or assembly. Their leaders were called episcopus or bishop, and also they tended to have sort of elders, respected members of the church who had some special authority, and they were called presbyteros or elder, and our word priest eventually derived from presbyteros. Now, in the East, more of those who embraced the message were Jewish and Syrian, Syriac was a certain variety of Aramaic that was common, especially in the eastern areas in what's now Syria or Jordan. And that was the main shared language. Rather than Koine Greek, it was Syriac. And so sometimes the church in this area is called the Syriac Church. But also very early on, it seems, we don't know the details of how, it also reached many other countries farther to the east. And uh, this includes, for one thing, India. We should mention India early on. We don't know exactly how Christianity first reached India, but traditional church stories say that it was brought by the Apostle Thomas, one of the disciples who knew Jesus in Galilee and in Jerusalem, and that they made a sort of cooperative agreement that Thomas should go to India. We don't know if that's true. There's no contemporary document to prove that, but it's certainly possible. Uh, people in Judea knew of India. They knew it was an enormous, wealthy, powerful society. It was a trading partner with the Roman Empire on the Silk Road, and it's a place where an apostle could have gone and started to plant a church. And we do know that early on, within the first 300 years or so, Christianity did spread significantly and churches did form along the southwestern coast of India, basically in those areas that would later be called the Malabar Coast or Cochin or Kerala. And there is still today a very ancient Christian church in Kerala in the southwestern tip uh, of India. And these churches 
loosely affiliated with the church in Syria. So they sometimes are still called the Syrian Orthodox Church, although it is very much an Indian church. Also, Armenia, the faith reportedly was brought up to the northeast into the kingdom of Armenia by apostles named Thaddeus and Bartholomew, who uh, were persecuted. And although a church formed there, it also was repeatedly persecuted. Eventually, a Christian leader named Gregory the Illuminator was able to convert the king of Armenia to the Christian faith in the year 301. And soon after that, Christianity was made into the state church. And so this was the first state of any sort in the world to create an officially supported Christian church. And we don't know exactly why this happened. Was it just the personal beliefs of this king? Probably it was also partly political. It was a way for Armenia to distinguish itself from Persia, which was still a a powerful state, a resurgent state, and which was Zoroastrian. So this was a way of sort of adopting a religion that had some commonalities, that was monotheistic, but which was separate uh, and distinct from Persia. Another very early uh, fertile ground was Ethiopia. It seems that the Christian message reached Ethiopia very quickly through trade and diplomacy, particularly by way of Jews. There was a Jewish group in Ethiopia there was travel and communication back and forth, and so probably there were Jewish converts who were early conduits. According to the book of Acts, a Christian apostle named Philip the Evangelist converted the treasurer of the kingdom under who was serving under Queen Candace or Queen Kandake of Aksum, which was the name of the, the kingdom covering what's now Ethiopia and Eritrea. And Philip baptized this treasurer, and he then brought the faith back to the royal court in Aksum. We don't know, you know, we can't say for sure if that, that story is exactly accurate, the evidence is scarce, but certainly the faith grew tremendously, and in the 300s it was officially established as the state church of Ethiopia. So uh, so the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, it is, again, like Armenia, like the Syriac Church in India, it is loosely affiliated with what we now call the Eastern Orthodox Churches, but it has its own distinctive beliefs and teachings, its own canon of scriptures that go back to the early centuries of the early church. Another place where the faith gained a foothold, but certainly never became official, was in the Persian Empire. So first in Mesopotamia, that had been under Persian rule for many years, and then in the Persian homeland itself. And according to the New Testament, there were Persian apostles present at the Pentecost. So at this early uh, miraculous event, where the apostles in Jerusalem received revelations through the Holy Spirit and visions of Christ. Uh, you can also think of even earlier connections to Persia, according to the scriptures, such as the three magi. In other words, Chaldean astrologers from the Persian Empire who went and bore witness to the, the birth of Christ, according to the Gospel of Matthew. So it seems there's, there's certainly evidence of early connections of Persians being aware and interested in the Christian church. 
and it spread along the eastern borders of the Roman Empire, along these sort of uh, trade routes and connections, trading towns, where the Roman and Persian territories met. It went into Mesopotamia, uh, largely using Syriac. It was often persecuted by the Persian Empire, which you know wanted to maintain Zoroastrianism as the state religion. And there's a very important archaeological site at a town called Dura Europos. And that's, that site is in what's now Syria. It was tragically damaged by ISIS not long ago. But it seems that in the 3rd century, in the 200s, when the church is still rapidly growing, uh, the town of Dura Europos flourished on the upper Euphrates River. It was a tr- trade crossroads. And it's very important archaeologically. One of the oldest synagogues that's ever been found in the world is there. So there was an active Jewish presence. Also the oldest house church that's ever been found. So this is a building that was originally probably a large residence of a wealthy person, but it was converted over to the specific use of Christian gatherings. It had a large assembly room and a large baptistry which apparently was centrally important, even more so than the altar. And it contains the earliest known Christian art with depictions of Jesus Christ. So there are scenes, fresco scenes painted in the baptistry of Christ as the good shepherd, of Christ healing the paralytic, which is a story in the Gospels, of Christ and Peter walking on water, And so these are the earliest known depictions of Christ himself. There's also a scene showing three women approaching a sarcophagus, which was probably intended as a depiction of those three women who uh, found the, the empty tomb and proclaimed the news, the message of the resurrection of Christ. The style of this artwork is Hellenistic Jewish. So it's in line with the artwork produced by by Jews who had adopted some Greek styles, Uh, but it is also cruder. It was probably done by a poorer artist. Maybe the Christian group had less money. Maybe it was because of secrecy. And also there were scrolls found in this house church at Dura Europos, scrolls with Christian Eucharistic prayers. So the sort of prayers you might offer when you are partaking in that shared meal written in Hebrew, but they are also very close and very similar to prayers recorded in the Didache, which I'll talk about more later. So if you had looked at the church overall as of about 150 or even 200, 250 AD, it may very well have seemed as if the main strength and future of the Christian faith was in the East, was in these Syriac-speaking communities in Palestine and eastward. But it also did continue to spread and even accelerated in the Roman Empire. So by 200, it seems that there were about 200,000 Christians in the Roman Empire, in Roman territory. So it had gotten up to about 0.4% of the entire population, and it was becoming a sizable, noticeable presence overall in the Roman world. And it was gaining footholds, particularly in towns with ports on the seacoast or at important crossroads, also in towns with Jews that had 
a diaspora Jewish presence. Many Jews had been expelled or had to flee from Palestine through the repeated crushed rebellions. And those scattered Jewish groups also probably provided, again, early conduit points for Christianity to spread. It seems that these small groups were led by, again, by bishops, and they attracted many people from the lower classes, such as criminals and ex-criminals, prostitutes, uh, servants and laborers. Many of them began meeting in catacombs, which was a very symbolic move because the Roman world had an extreme taboo against death, against associating with any sort of dead bodies or anything that had been polluted by connections with death. And the Romans were kind of flying right in the face of that taboo by often meeting in cemeteries or underground catacombs. You can see Roman art in some of these catacombs drawn and painted on the walls with Christian symbols. And Christ often was symbolically associated particularly with fish and fishermen. There are the gospel stories about Christ going out on the Sea of Galilee with Jewish fishers. He's presented as a fisher of souls. So you sometimes see symbols like fish or depictions of Jewish stories dealing with the sea like Jonah and the whale. But the most common sort of simple Christian emblem still was the Cairo, just the the simple symbol of the Greek letters chi and rho, which are the first two letters of the name of Christ. And that that's what you see as sort of the marker of Christian presence in the Roman world before the cross became more common. That didn't really come into fashion till later. So by 200, it seems that, uh, as I said, there were around 200,000, and then it in the third century, it ballooned. So in this time of crisis, political instability in the Roman Empire, it mushroomed and it seems to have grown to, we can guess, around 2 million by 250 AD. So now we're talking about around 2% of the whole imperial population. So naturally it was gaining attention and it began to infiltrate the upper classes as well. And as more upper-class people began to join and even patronize the churches, their teachings and their customs had to shift. You know, what had been a great emphasis on simplicity, voluntary poverty, modesty, they had to start to sort of finesse and massage their teachings and allow for uh, more displays of wealth and finery, even as they still maintained the belief in spiritual equality among all Christians. They started to get access to better meeting places and better stuff, you know, more beautiful altars, ritual implements, uh, and larger, more beautified spaces in which to hold their churches. It also spread in the army. And this is probably a big part of why it accelerated, was that in the crisis of the 200s, the empire began to be more militarized. More people were recruited or drafted into armies. These armies were dispatched rapidly out to various far-flung places around the empire, including the northern and northeastern frontiers. And soldiers who wanted a community, a social network that would support them wherever they were stationed, could become Christian. So it, it accelerated, and there is a possibility, we don't know, uh, it may have worked its way all the way up to the imperial throne. There was an emperor in the 3rd century who 
was more favorable to Christianity and may have even been a Christian himself, but that's uncertain. The more common pattern was persecution. So Christians were periodically persecuted in the empire. It was not a constant terror. There was never really, well, for the first 300 years, there was not a concerted effort to stamp out Christianity. But sometimes it was seen as possibly dangerous or subversive. And the main common objection about Christians that came up was that they refused to show respect and reverence for the Roman state cults, and hence they could be seen as disloyal. In the year 64, according to later reports and stories, in the year 64, when much of Rome was destroyed in a great fire, the emperor Nero blamed it on the Christian group. That's what the Roman historian Tacitus said. And uh, he killed a number of Christian leaders, and Christian documents claim that among those killed was Peter, the apostle who had gone to Rome. But still, most persecutions were sporadic, they were local, and they were temporary. It was not a concerted imperial policy to kill Christians or destroy the faith. The emperor Trajan explicitly said in one of his directives to governors, he said that Christians were not to be actively sought out, but they should be punished if they caused problems. So if they harassed or caused disruptions of state events, if they made a show of their refusal to worship in the state cults, then they should be punished. Some Christian leaders, it it seems, tempted fate, you could say. They might intentionally goad or mock public officials, governors, priests, generals, and in this way openly courted martyrdom. So already by this time, there was a common belief among some Christians that you should imitate the example of Christ and that you should proclaim the message even if or especially if that leads to you being killed for the faith. There also was a problem among Jewish Christians in Judea who had already sort of hived off and become a distinct group. There was a Jewish uprising led by another Messianic figure called Bar Kokhba, And this Jewish kingdom that formed this rebel kingdom, it seems, also persecuted Christians because Christians refused to to join in the revolt. They kind of resigned themselves to, to God's will and to the eventual end times. And so they were targeted for their refusal to take part. And this may have also helped spread, you know, force more Christians to leave and spread to other places. And it you could say, kind of sealed the final separation between mainstream Jews and Christians. They were now two uh, separate and even quasi-hostile groups. Excuse me. Christianity was also persecuted in the Persian Empire and was seen as a threat to the state cults there, even more so, you could say, than in the Roman Empire. In the year 235, it seems important leaders of the church in Rome were killed after Christians were discovered in the imperial household. It had reached into the upper class and even into the imperial court, and this sort of triggered uh, a brief round of persecution where, again, the, the bishop of Rome and other leaders were executed. In 249, the emperor Decius began the first concerted empire-wide campaign to suppress Christianity. 
Decius issued demands that all citizens had to make sacrifices to the Roman imperial gods. And we don't know why he did this. Was he trying to find dissidents? Or did he merely want these offerings and sacrifices to be performed to the state cult in order to give him good luck in war? In the, in, at this time, this was a time of, of militarization and warfare, especially in Europe. What did he specifically want to find and root out Christians? Maybe, unclear. But some Christians, it seems, fled to the countryside or they purchased false certificates, sort of forged certificates vouching that they had performed the, the required sacrifices. And in various ways, many of them tried to evade this persecution. But still, in the 250s, many leaders were captured and killed or exiled from the Roman Empire. Also, uh, they were banned. Christians were banned from meeting in cemeteries and other meeting places. But those rights to meet and hold churches in places like cemeteries were later restored in the 260s. So it was not a permanent policy. Again, it was just a temporary campaign. And this sort of situation continued then until finally there was, you could say, the big one. The one really enormous, dramatic uh, full bore effort to destroy Christianity, which was the sort of final, you could say, the final real test of the Christian church in the Roman Empire. And that was in the early 300s under the emperor Diocletian. So it's sometimes called the Diocletianic or Great Persecution. And Diocletian was determined to reform and retrench the empire overall. He saw the empire as being in decline and fragmentation, and he wanted to re-centralize and strengthen the empire again to stop this uh, trend of decline and dissolution. And Diocletian was the first one who really wanted to stamp out the Christian religion, which he saw as sapping the strength and unity of the empire. So he uh, issued orders to destroy churches, to confiscate Christian scriptures, and to arrest priests and force them to make sacrifices to the state cults. And this served as a sort of test of the strength or resilience of the church, and they passed the test. Eventually, Diocletian stepped down and shortly after died, and the persecution stopped. It was unsuccessful. He was succeeded eventually by Constantine, who was able to seize control of the Western Empire in 312 and then the Eastern Empire in 324. And Constantine is the one who put a permanent end to the persecution of Christianity and instead gave it a protected status in the empire. So before we talk about Constantine, I'll mention him again later. What resulted from these persecutions? Well, a main result was, was the creation of martyrs, of people who in some way willingly accepted their fate of dying for the sake of the faith and who sometimes showed great strength and grace. Uh, the first rep reported martyr was St. Stephen, who was a deacon or sort of manager of the church at Jerusalem in A.D. 36. So probably just a few years <clears throat> excuse me, after the crucifixion, you already have a martyr who then was seen as kind of a holy person, an example for Christians. Other very important impactful martyrs include Polycarp, who was uh, the bishop of Smyrna 
and a disciple of James, so he had an apostolic connection to Jesus Christ, and he was publicly burned at the stake in Smyrna in 155 or 56. Another one after that was uh, Perpetua, a young woman of the upper class, and her servant Felicitas, who were martyred at Carthage in the year 203. And her martyrdom is very elaborately described and recounted in uh, a text, a sort of hagiographic text, which became a common custom then to write accounts of martyrdoms. And it includes Perpetua's visions and dreams that she had while she was in the church. Uh, And her dreams resembled the stories of Jacob's Ladder, his visions in the Old Testament. And so she was probably a charismatic leader, a visionary, and her martyrdom also had a great impact. There are also many stories of early saints uh, who are venerated as holy martyrs, such as, uh, and some of them are paired or connected together. So I mentioned there's Perpetua and Felicitas. Another is Sergius and Bacchus, who reportedly were Roman soldiers who were martyred in the 4th century. And they were, they were soldiers in the army of the general Galerius, who is fighting against Persia. And hence, they were probably killed in the eastern frontiers of the empire and came to be venerated in the east, as well as in the Roman Empire. Uh, there is the famous story you might have heard of St. Lawrence, who was a deacon of the church, a sort of, uh, you know, you could say kind of assistant bishop or deacon of the Church of Rome, who reportedly was roasted alive uh, until he died in the year 258. And according to the stories, he said he at one point, uh, I'm done on this side. You can turn me over now. And, you know, it's, it's a cute little story, but it encapsulates this sense that the martyrs were extraordinary. They were kind of miracle workers in the way that they could face death with equanimity. And so basically these persecutions, by producing martyrs, they ended up redounding to the benefit of the church. They generated curiosity and interest When people were martyred publicly, it helped to spread the message and raise questions. Who are these Christians? Who is this God that they're so devoted to? It ended up increasing conversions. In each of these waves of persecution, they were then followed by a wave of conversions and growth of the church. So it was kind of unstoppable. And the martyrs came to be venerated. People gathered relics, pieces of clothing, ritual objects, even body parts or hair from the dead martyrs. And these could then be treasured. And again, this could help to uh, sort of shock the norms of mainstream Roman, Gentile Romans, who thought, who are these people who are going so far as to associate themselves with dead bodies, this ultimate most taboo thing there can be. But it also, the, the persecutions also led to crises within the church, too, that turned out to be very important. What do you do to people who are afraid of persecution, who flee, or who abjure the faith, repudiate Christianity, make offerings to Roman gods, but then, after the brief campaign of persecution ends, want to go back to the church. This created a big repeating crisis. What do you do with people who have committed this ultimate sin of 
of apostasy, of leaving the faith, and now want to come back. And so I'll talk later about how the church dealt with that and how important that would be. So how did Christianity finally come to be accepted? Well, the critical turning point figure was, of course, Constantine, who was a general and then was able to seize power with the support of his troops and become emperor. And Constantine saw the strength of the Christian group. He saw that they had risen at at the time he came to the imperial throne. They were probably up to about 10% of the population. And he knew that they were big in the army, this critical institution upon which his own power and authority rested. And he was able to see the church in a different light, not as a source of dissension and disunity, but instead as a source of cohesion, as a way of bringing the different peoples and regions of the empire together. And so he embraced Christianity. He stopped the persecution. This doesn't mean he necessarily became a Christian. It's not clear exactly when that might have happened. To what degree did he believe in the Christian message? It's hard to say. But he did stop the persecution, and he began officially supporting churches and giving them money and spaces in public the same way you did with the Roman imperial cults. He, At some point, a story began to circulate that has persisted, a story that before he engaged in this crucial battle against his rival Maxentius, the battle at the Milvian Bridge, he had a vision of the Cairo, and he heard a voice saying, under this sign you will be victorious, uh, in hoc signo vinces. Did he, did Constantine really say that himself? We don't know, but that is the story that soon attached to him. So there was, you could say, he had a special gratitude to the Christian God, which he believed had helped him to achieve power. And so now church churches and great Roman monuments, basilicas dedicated to the Christian faith could be openly built. Constantine also oversaw the creation of Constantinople, a massive new capital in the East, where Christian churches would be given a prominent presence. You could say, in a sense, it was almost... Uh, built to be the first Christian city. And soon Constantine convened the first ecumenical council. And this ecumenical, it comes from the Greek word for for house. Uh, So it was, in a sense, the entire house, the entire family of Christianity was supposed to gather at this one council at the city of Nicaea in Asia Minor in the year 325. And really, it was, a, it was a council composed of representatives, mostly bishops, from all these various scattered churches around the empire and even east of the empire. So part of why Constantine chose this city of Nicaea as the site for this ecumenical council over east of Constantinople was that it would be accessible for bishops to come even from countries to the east like Armenia, Georgia, Syria, and Egypt where Christianity had gained a foothold. So this Council of Nicaea was, you could say, the first open effort to work out a consensus, to try to hammer out an agreement on what the Christian faith was, how to understand Christ, and I'll talk about that more later. 
and how the church should run. And it was understood at that moment, at least, to be the highest final authority of the church, and it was presided over by Constantine himself. So what's important about the Council of Nicaea is that it was the first time that there was a, a massive inclusive gathering to try to work out what the church would be that included an enormous array of different Christians from different parts of the world, but not everybody. Not everybody was able to get a bishop to the council, and there were some churches, especially far to the east in Persia and India, that weren't able to take part and that didn't necessarily subscribe to the views and the agreements that were reached at the Council of Nicaea. But I'll touch on that later. So that gives you a basic picture of how the church grew and of how the faith came to be this enormous, sprawling institution covering so much of the world. How did these churches work? What were the practices going on in these Christian communities? So thank you so much. I'll leave off there for this installment, and next time I'll get into how the beliefs and practices of the church evolved and how the multiple disputes and ambiguities had to be resolved. Thank you.